We are in the book of Romans, and uh, the second chapter we left off uh, at chapter 2, verse 16. We're going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 17, and, and take it to the end of that uh, second chapter. And if you were following along in the sermons uh, before I left, um, you'll notice that about midstream of chapter 1, all the way through middle of chapter 3, uh, Paul goes into a very, very long discourse, um, which really explains what we would call, um, from a theological standpoint, the depravity of man. He goes into this, uh, he, he erases every possible excuse somebody could have for saying to God, look God, I'm okay. <laughs> you have to take me. I'm good. I'm okay. Um, first he talks about the, just the outright sinfulness of man in the latter part of uh, chapter 1, and then he goes into chapter 2, those of you who think you're good on your own merit, and now he's going to turn his attention to the Jews who think because they're a Jew uh, that God needs to look at them with great favor. And so I pick it up in verse 17 of chapter 2. He says, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. And I want to stop right there. Uh, Because Paul is, as you can see, reiterating why the Jews feel that they have some justification before God. These are all the things of which we're good at. These are the things that we know. And um, he actually starts off being quite confrontational. <laughs> because he says, if you bear the name Jew. It would be like him coming to us today and saying, if you call yourself a Christian. Well, of course I'm a Christian. Why would you take such a confrontational stance with me? If you call yourself a Christian... It immediately puts the reader on the defensive, especially the Jewish reader. And then he expands on that and he says, you Jews think you have justification before God and you rely on these things for your justification. And he lists about five things and I'm going to list them for you. He says, first of all, you have your religious identity. You think that you're okay just because you're a Jew. It'd be kind of like thinking you're okay. Uh, like if you were born in England, you would be Anglican. If you were born in Greek, uh, Greece, what would you be? You'd be... Orthodox. If you're born in Italy, what would you be? Catholic. And if you're born in America, what are you? You're just Christian, right? Not exactly. The second thing he says to the Jew, he says, you think you're okay because you have the law. God singles you out and, you know, Moses, Mount Sinai, he gave you the law. So because you have the law, you think you're okay. Thirdly, he says, you're God's chosen people. You boast in God. In other words, you can go and say to the Gentile, hey, I'm part of God's chosen people. Number four, you know God's will. Through the law, it's been explained to you what's right, what's wrong. You're not out there wondering what's right and wrong. You have been given this in the law. And then fifthly, he says, you're a you are a guide. Because you have all this information from God, you are a guide to the spiritually blind. You know the right way. You're able to teach others. It says you're able to correct those that are foolish in their ways. You're able to teach those that are immature. You have a lot of things going for you, don't you, Jew? You think that because of these things that God can look upon you and say, 
you're okay. Now, he's not saying these things are bad necessarily. But he is saying this, that relying on these things as your justification before God is of no value. And when we rely on God, uh, uh, when we rely on our outward behavior uh, to show God that, you know, we're really good people. You ought to accept us. Well, we actually become what we call moralists. We talk about this from time to time. Moralists, people who think that by being good and not being bad, that God somehow needs to take us in. And as I prepared this message, I began to think, you know, how can I structure these points? And I began to think, you know, I'm asking myself a lot of questions as I read through this. I have to ask my own self some questions. And so my points today are actually just questions to offer to you. My first question is this, what am I relying on for God's acceptance? And I would ask you that today. What are you relying on? That you can say to God, you have to take me in. You have to accept me. I'm justified before you. Tim Keller writes this about moralism. He says, moralism is extremely common. It always has been. In fact, it's the biggest religion in the world today. It's the religion of people who compare themselves with others. Who who notice that they're a lot more decent than other people. (laughs) And they think, if there is a God, he'll certainly accept me. I'm a good person. How do we know if we've lapsed into Christian moralism as the source of our righteousness? Well, it's whenever we brag about something we've done. When we we rely on our own action, our profession, our identities. Then we're living as functional moralists. I'm better than the next guy. See, God... So let me ask you, does moralism exist in the, in the American evangelical church today? Everybody trying to be good and not bad and show God how good we are, not how bad we're not? Now, we don't do the same things the Jews did. We have a whole different list of things, don't we? We have this list of what we would say, this is good and appropriate behavior. And if you're not, then you're not a good person. If you do these things, you are a good person. I mean, Christians, we go to church, we read the Bible, we keep a spiritual journal maybe, we serve in a ministry of some kind, we go to a life group, we give our money, we're nice and kind to people as much as possible. We try to avoid habits like smoking or excessive alcohol or swearing or, you know, we just try not to do bad things. And what Paul's saying here in Romans, he's he's saying that it's not that the rules are bad things. He's saying relying on those rules as a means of justification before God is. You know, the thing about moralism, it's always changing. It's different from one generation to the next, isn't it? I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I was taught from early on that going to movies was just downright evil. Anybody else else raised like that? I guess I'm the only one. Okay. I could never go to movies when I was growing up. And I'd ask, my, I, I, I sometimes ask, I'd say, what's the matter with this cartoon? 
Why, why can't I go there? Well, you'd be promoting the movie industry. You can't go. You know, I never went to a movie until I was 16 and had my own driver's license. You know, back then, good Christian women, well, they didn't wear makeup. They didn't have excessive jewelry. You know, TV was permitted on a limited basis because there were some of those shows that were just too suggestive. I mean, this was the 60s. Remember Gilligan's Island? I'm just saying. I mean, morals change. It's a moving target. And so I ask, what, what, what makes you think you're right with God? And some people might say, well, it's because I filled out some commitment card or I responded to an altar call or I recited a certain prayer or I lead a Bible study. I memorize scriptures. What are you relying on? None of those are bad things. Unless you're relying on them for your justification. You know, I think about my own life. I'm, I'm that personality that wants to be good. I want to follow the rules. I want to do things right. And I mean, I can fall into this trap. I can fall into this trap of relying on my good behavior and presenting my good behavior to God. And you owe me. I tell you, when I see myself wandering down that path, you know what I notice? When I'm wandering down this path of trying to show God how good I am and how bad I'm not, you know what I notice? I notice an increase in bad behavior and a decrease in good behavior <laughs> because I'm focused on behavior. Now, how do we correct that? You know, when I, when I see myself going down that trend, I have learned over the years it's not just a matter of reorienting how I think about things. And I think this is so important because I think we fall into this trap. There's so many Christian people today who believe that when they see themselves behaving poorly or they see a trend like that, they simply remind themselves that they're completely forgiven in Christ. They're not justified by their behavior. His grace extends to all of this. They might go out and read a, their favorite grace book or they might go out and listen to their favorite grace message to get themselves back on track. Is that what you need? No. What you need is Jesus. You need the real life person of Jesus. We need to fall on our face before a holy God and we need to let him express his love to us. We need to let him change us. We need to let his word speak truth to us. We need him. And it's only the power of Christ in, uh, at work in your life that can cleanse away those things and can bring about the life that you know you ought to live. And that's what Paul is saying in these first three chapters of Romans. We have no merit. We have no standing. None of us. Jews, Gentiles, none of us. We have no standing before God that we can say, look, God, I'm a good person. You have to take me. And then Paul, in the 21st verse, he exposes the Jewish religious people to their own failures. After he lists all those things about the, the commendations, now he's going to kind of dismantle that. 
Look what he says in verse 21. You therefore who teach one another, teach others. Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that you shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor hate idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, Jews. Just as it was written, just as it is written in the prophecies. I tell you, someone who teaches and preaches, it's kind of like, ouch. When you teach, are you, do you teach yourself? Are you hearing what you say? Are you practicing what you preach? When you read the Bible, when you study it, is it changing you? The point the Scripture is making is that the Jewish people have become so obsessed with externals that they didn't let God and His Word penetrate into the secret places of the heart. And so my second question for you today is, does the Word of God penetrate my heart consistently? Does the Word of God penetrate me, change me consistently? The great British preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, he says, As you read your Bible day by day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What's your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have a knowledge of it so you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to you? As you read, say to yourself, this is me. What is it saying about me? Allow the scripture to search you. Otherwise, listen to this. He says, allow the scripture to search you. Otherwise, it can be very dangerous. There's a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. How true. You know, I thought of an illustration that I heard Wayne Cadero use once. Wayne Cadero is a pastor in Honolulu, a big church there. He had a friend who was another pastor of a big church and um, a close friend, one of his best friends, he said, and... This pastor had a moral failure, had an affair, lost his ministry, lost his church. And uh, Wayne said, I had had a conversation with him. I went to him and I said, how does one get from this place to this place? How did this happen? I mean, you, you preach the word with such fervency and effectiveness. How do you get to this place? And he says, the pastor, he said, he took his Bible and he laid it out in his hand. And he says, you know what I was doing week after week after week? I was studying and I was looking and I was reading and I was getting the best possible illustrations. And I was looking into the word and then I was taking it and I was giving it. And I would then the next week I would get it and I would deliver it and I would learn and I would toss it out. And he says, I discovered I never took the word of God and put it in here. I let it flow out. I never let it get in here. 
Is the word of God changing you? Is it consistently penetrating? Hebrews 4.12, familiar passage. It's worth our reading every once in a while. For the word of God is living. It's alive. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The scripture is alive. It's powerful when approached in the power of the spirit. Spirit, take the words of what I'm reading. And just slice me. <laughs> Divide. Separate me. Take your sword. Pierce me. Let it separate me from that which isn't you. Put my feet on solid ground. It only comes from your word. Let it teach and correct, admonish me. You know, when, when, when you approach the word of God with the Holy Spirit and you say, Spirit of God, take the word and use it in me, change me, do surgery in me. All of a sudden, there's a feasting on the word that takes place. And there is this, this change that occurs. And there's this draw that you have towards the word. And I tell you, people who intellectually study the word or they do it out of duty because that's what good people do. You know, we read the Bible. And so every day I got 15 minutes, I got to read the Bible. I got three chapters. Or I'm not going to keep up with my plan. You know what I mean? I got to get it done. What happens to their Bible reading after a while? It gets less frequent. Because there's nothing happening. There's nothing flowing into them. You know, Paul's not done here with the Jews. <laughs> he gets really personal now. He, he, he goes after the very sign of the covenant of God with his people. Circumcision. He, this was the covenant that, that God made with Abraham, the patriarch. It meant everything to the Jewish people. It was their identity in so many ways. And they even called Gentiles, they referred to Gentiles as the uncircumcised. Which was a term for evil people, sinful people. So look what the rest of the chapter says, starting with verse 25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, and he's just spent verses Showing them that they're all transgressors of the law. So he's saying your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So you Jew are just like those uncircumcised evil sinful people. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law. Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who was physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew or the covenant with God, the sign or the person of God. He is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision, true circumcision, is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God.
It's this cutting away. This cutting away of that truly brings spiritual life. He equates this cutting away of circumcision to the cutting away of the Spirit of Christ, cutting us and separating us from the old us. You know, sometimes, sometimes this cutting away can be painful, can it? You ever had God cut on you a little bit and it was somewhat painful? Uh, maybe it's a cutting away of unhealthy patterns in your life and uh, you get exposed and you get uh, revealed. It, it could be a cutting away of a relationship that's harmful to you. It could be a detachment or a cutting away, severing from some hope and some dream that you thought you would be able to accomplish in your life. And God says, I don't really want you to have any idols at all, even ministry idols. I I just want to be everything unrivaled in your heart. And so there's this cutting away. And the point that he makes here in the passage is that only God can do that. Only the Spirit of God can do that. I mean, let me ask you, do you have the power to change your heart? Uh, You can try hard to change your behavior, but change your heart, it's going to take God. (laughs) It's going to take the very Spirit of God to do this kind of inward, deep work in your life. The Jews, well, they were trusting in the sign of their faith rather than the author of their faith. And I'm here to tell you today, it's possible to trust in Christianity rather than Christ. (laughs) isn't it? Think about that. It's, it, it, it is possible to say, I trust in Christianity. I trust in the Christian way. I believe the Christian story. I live in a Christian nation. I go to church. I trust in my Christian routine rather than in Christ. And it can happen. It can happen in churches like this. It, it, it can be... What, what we do, what we teach, how we believe. Those things can become the objective rather than this growing, ever-deepening walk in Christ. And I think sometimes we lose sight of it, to be honest. We, we turn things like discipleship into knowledge gaining and lessons learned. And if we get people to believe the right things, everything's okay. If we're not careful, we can make spiritual life so very human. Let me ask you, how much of the church could go on if the Holy Spirit was just extracted out of it? How much of what we do as the routine of the church would just go on as normal, even if the Holy Spirit was completely extracted from us? It wouldn't be very effective, but a lot of the things that happen could go right on. But it would only involve human excellence. It would only involve human effort. And it doesn't have the power to cut into the heart of man. It doesn't have the power of the spiritual, alive, living, active word that can change a person. Only God can do that. And as I've journeyed through this life, I've become convinced that God, (laughs) this is almost silly to say, that God can do in your life and in my life in a moment's time He can do more than a year's of sermons and books I've read. (laughs) Would you agree with that? 
That God in a moment's time can change me. God in a moment's time can change you. God in a moment's time can flood truth into my life. Can help me understand grace in my life. Can, can experience his love in my life. In a far more succinct way than study. We have to be very careful. In fact, Jesus says... Um, The Holy Spirit will guide you where? Into all truth. Jesus himself said it. Without the Holy Spirit, you're going to get a little bit confused about what's true. The Holy Spirit is what will illuminate the truth of the Scripture to you. So even this grasping of of and internalizing this spiritual truth is a supernatural spirit activity in my life. And so I have to ask myself, what is my motivation when I come to the Word of God? What is my motivation when I come to church? What's my motivation when I worship? What's my motivation when I hear preaching? Is it that the word of God would penetrate and change me? Or is it that I don't want to be stimulated in my brain and I want to enjoy the songs? What is my motivation? You know, as I've been away these past three weeks... You know, sometimes being a ways helps reorient things in your brain a little bit. <laughs> you have to get out of the situation and out of your routine to spend some time with God. And, you know, as I spent time with God and as I talked about these things with, with Cindy, and I, I felt a growing sense of urgency in my life and my spirit, a restlessness. I just, I just believe that we are in a very tumultuous time. Some may say, I read too much online. <laughs> Watch the news too much. But I think we live in a tumultuous period of history, don't you? I mean, I, I, see, I see the world in so many conflicts and there's... It's in so many ways just kind of a time bomb ready to explode, I think. And, and some of you ask me about all these prophecy things that are floating out there today. And yeah, I've read a lot of those things. I understand about these blood moons. You understand about the blood moons? I, I, I understand the seven-year cycle of the, of the Jewish calendar. And I, I, I know that back in 2001 on Rosh Hashanah in September, we had the great uh, collapse of the economy, the great stock market crash, uh, the largest one to date back then. And then actually seven years later, 2008, on Rosh Hashanah, the feast day of the Jews, there was the stock market crash that was now even greater than 2001. I understand the seven-year cycle, 2001, 2008, 2015. And I know that Rosh Hashanah is three weeks from today. And I'm not here to say that I'm predicting the future or I know the future. But I know. I know it is time for the church. It's always been the time for the church. It's it's more urgent than ever before that the church cry out to a holy God. and With this sense of urgency about us. The, the whole moralistic approach to faith is just not going to stand up when it's put to the test. I'm sorry. 
just this dry intellectual pursuit of spiritual things is just going to crumble under pressure. There's really only one thing that's going to last, and that's the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. (laughs) It's the power and presence of God changing the hearts and lives of people, preparing you and me for whatever comes, whenever comes. It's going to take the reality of Him. And nothing else will do. And I'm afraid in some ways we've become reliant upon things. We've become reliant on ourselves, our own personal talents and skills, or our money, or even our good works, our resources. See, God, we're good people. Look at all that we do. And it, is the Word of God just cutting deep into us? Is it penetrating us? Is it changing us? The, the church is going to need to be this. this it, it, it needs to be this organism that is presenting a true picture of the gospel, of who he is. It doesn't matter what goes on in the culture, what is, what is stripped away, what is gone. If it's in excess, if it's in... Uh, In lack, it doesn't matter. The church is the church because it's not based upon the culture around it. It's based upon the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's resilient. And and when things happen in the culture that dismantle the culture and it gets ever, ever darker, the church comes shining forth like this bright light expressing what is good and right about God. It's the only hope the world has. And it just might be crunch time is what I'm saying. It just might be the greatest call of our lives in these days in which we live. Let's pray. Father God, in these days, you've been, you've been speaking into my life over the last several months, actually. About a ministry of preparation. And as we read the book of Romans and we see... That there is no hope on which we can rest except you. There is no hope of our own goodness. There's no hope of our nationality. There's no hope of anything but you. And so, Father, I pray that as a church, you would be shaping us to be that surrendered people that just look to you and say, Lord, continually be changing us, molding us, shaping us, make us that resilient people that can stand when the, 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 the wind is blowing and tossing the church to and fro. and No matter what happens, Father God. That we're not standing on anything but you. And Father, whatever it takes for us to be that. Whatever it takes in each individual's life for us to get there, Father. I pray that you would do. I pray that... Uh, No matter what comes our way, the rest of this year, next year, a decade from now, no matter what comes our way, that people will see in us the reality of the presence of God and be desirous of it. I want to know the hope for which we have. I want to know why we love in such a powerful way. I want us to sing before we go and... uh, I want us to sing that song that we sang earlier. 
It has that phrase, all I am, I surrender. Give me faith, God, to know that you're good. That you know the future. You know what you're doing. Shape me. Mold me. Make me what you want me to be.